All right, our scripture reading this morning is going to be in the book of Acts, looking at chapter 20. We're going to read verses 17 through 38 of Acts chapter 20. Can we all stand together as we read this text? I'll read the first verse and ask that you join with me on the second, and we'll continue every other verse. Acts 20, beginning with verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Our Father and our God, we ask for your blessing now over this time that we have to study uh, the word of God together. I pray that you would give clarity uh, to this most important text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Guide my words, help me to accurately explain and apply the words that we have here before us, and we pray for uh, benefit, for profit for everyone here, that we would all grow in our knowledge and our understanding of you and of your will for each one of us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
The text before us this morning is one that is highly relevant today. There's a lot of very good content here, and so we're going to work through it in four phases. Uh, First, we're going to walk straight through the text. I'll give you just a quick overview uh, so that we can have the whole thing clear in our minds. Then we'll circle back around. We'll pull out seven instructions that are given to pastors. Uh, Then two general observations, and then four more broadly applicable, applicable points for all followers of Christ. So I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to just jump right into it with very little introduction. We are, of course, at the uh, cl- close of the third and final missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul is traveling down to Jerusalem. He's headed back uh, from the various places that he's been over the last several years, and he's stopped on his way to Jerusalem at the city of Miletus. That's where our text takes place uh, this morning. Miletus is on the coast of Asia, about 30 miles from Ephesus, and so verse 17 begins by telling us that from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. Uh, Ephesus, you remember, is the city where Paul had spent the last basically three years uh, leading this church here, and the impact during those years was felt throughout the whole region of Asia. A massive revival took place uh, during his time there as people were turning away from their idolatry, and they began to worship and serve the Lord Jesus. And so by this time, the church at Ephesus was one of the largest and most well-established churches in existence. Some have guessed that it's uh, possibly over a thousand members at this church. So a very large church uh, here in the ancient world, and it has really, uh, from Ephesus, there have been churches planted throughout this whole region because of Paul's ministry there for those years. Verse 17 tells us that Paul sent word to Ephesus and he called for the elders of the church to come to Miletus and he met, uh, and they met him there. Uh, we've looked at this before, but elders of the church, uh, those are the overseers of the church. There's two offices in the New Testament church, the deacons and the elders or the pastors. Uh, this goes back to Acts chapter 6 where we first saw uh, a long time ago, some of you were here during our study of Acts uh, when we got to chapter 6. The apostles were being distracted by some of the practical needs that were going on in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Like, for instance, in Acts 6, the issue was caring for the widows, making sure that the very poor people in the church were getting their food uh, and distributing those things. And so, because they were getting sidetracked by that, they decided uh, that they needed to appoint seven men to serve as deacons uh, to care for that task so that the elders could dedicate their time to the ministry of the word. And so from Acts 6 onward, it seems that was the pattern of local churches. Uh, The pastors or the elders would lead the church. The the deacons would serve the church. Uh, Elders were responsible for teaching the word of God. Uh, Deacons were responsible for caring for practical needs of the church. And so the office of elder, also called overseer, leader, teacher, uh, they're the shepherds of the church, the, the decision makers, and also the teachers of Scripture, of course. And these are the ones that Paul calls from the church at Ephesus, the leaders of the church there. Verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul recounts in those verses how he had ministered to them. He reminds them of his ministry among them for those years, how he had served God faithfully despite opposition, how he had labored in his teaching and preaching the gospel. And in verse 22, Paul says to them, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Uh, We're going to get into a couple of specific examples of that next week in Acts 21, uh, where the Holy Spirit warns Paul uh, through a couple of visions from uh, some prophets basically along the way that are telling Paul, uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to be captured, Uh, trouble awaits you there. And so God has been doing this all along Paul's trip, apparently, to Jerusalem. God has been warning him that if you go to Jerusalem, uh, you are going to be in danger. Verse 24, Paul continues, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul says in that verse that basically, although I know that this is ahead of me, I am not afraid of death. My life is not precious to myself. I am determined to finish the work that God has called me to do regardless of the consequences. Verse 25, now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Uh, So Paul is saying to them there, this is goodbye. Uh, My work in Ephesus is done. Paul has taught them all that they needed to know in order to continue on in his absence. And so as Paul leaves them now for the very last time, he makes very clear, you're never going to see me again. And he gives these elders some final instructions, beginning in verse 28. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul is passing on the baton to them now. He says, I'm leaving. Uh, You will never see me again. It is now up to you guys to take care of this church. I'm passing on that heavy responsibility of caring for this church in Ephesus, the church that Paul had labored for three years uh, to help establish. And so he says, it is now up to you. Paul wraps up by reminding them of the fact that he never took a paycheck uh, from the Ephesian church, but rather he worked Uh, You know that Paul was a tent maker on the side, and he did that the entire three years that he was in Ephesus to supply his own living. Verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. He's saying, I I supplied my own living. I even took care of the people that were uh, ministering with me, like the traveling companions of Paul. So he says, I wasn't indebted to the church. I didn't take any finances from this church. I just worked and supported myself. Verse 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. And so he implores them to follow his example of working hard uh, to earn money, to support themselves, and to give financially to the church. And then in these last three verses of the chapter, we see this very emotional goodbye uh, between Paul and the elders of this church, again, knowing that this is their last time uh, to see one another. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that he would not, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. As we talked about last week, the love of Paul for the church is very clearly seen in those verses. You see how these elders of the church of Ephesus clearly loved Paul. They appreciated his work, the years of his life that he had given to serve them. And indeed, Paul was right that he would never see their face again. And so he leaves, he sets sail from Miletus, and he is leaving the church of Ephesus in the care of these men. It is up to them to teach now. It is up to them to protect the church from false teachers and doctrinal error. It is up to them to care for the spiritual growth of the members. And so that's the quick overview of the text. Now time to move into the next section of the sermon. Uh, since this text is directed to the elders of the church in Ephesus, uh, naturally some of what is contained in this speech by Paul is specifically applicable to pastors. And so for the next few minutes, I hope you'll uh, humor me. I'm going to be preaching basically to myself at this point. Seven instructions that Paul gives to these pastors, all of, all of which I think uh, all pastors today ought to take seriously as well. Number one, <clears throat> pastors have a responsibility to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the lost. Uh, Paul modeled this for them in verse 25 where he says, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is what Paul did for these three years. He went about proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus, the fact that Jesus had died and risen again for their sins, that he had ascended to the right hand of the Father and was ruling over the church. And, and, and Paul preached that sinners must repent of their sins and submit our lives to the reign of the king. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority belongs to him. And so preaching the good news of the kingdom is calling people to submit their lives to the rule of Christ. And pastors have that responsibility to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the lost. Uh, next, we see pastors' responsibility to the saved, and this is what most of the text is about. How do pastors relate uh, to the church? And the first lesson we see here, the first instruction, is that pastors have a responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, beginning with verse 26, Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Uh, we are to make disciples of the king. That's part of what it means to proclaim the kingdom of God. As Matthew 28 says, we must teach everyone to obey all that Christ has commanded. And the fact that Paul says he did not shrink back from doing this implies that sometimes it is a temptation to do exactly that. It's hard not to shrink back sometimes. Sometimes I look at a sermon I'm about to preach, and I think, man, that's tough. Uh, I don't really want to say all of that. Uh, I don't like making people mad. I don't like offending people. 
And yet I have a responsibility as a pastor to not soften uh, the sharp edges of a text, but to declare to you all that God says in his word, including the difficult stuff. James says in chapter 3 of his letter, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I will stand before God on judgment day and give an account for how I handled scripture and how I taught this church. And that's a very heavy and serious responsibility. It is my duty to declare to the church the whole counsel of God and not to hold anything back. Again, in our text, uh, Paul uses similar language in verse 20 where he says to them, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. Now, you might wonder, how can we determine what is profitable? I certainly don't want to shrink back from declaring or preaching anything that would profit you. But how do you decide what is profitable? I think Paul himself answers that question in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, This is why, as a pastor, I preach texts of the Bible. I have nothing to say apart from what is in Scripture. Scripture is what I am to teach, and I am to not hold back from teaching any of it. Uh, This is one of the primary reasons why I teach through books of the Bible. I'm going to let you in on a little secret there. Uh, One of the reasons that I preach straight through books of the Bible is that it helps me to declare the whole counsel of God. Because here's something I know about myself. If I were just uh, picking each week what text I feel like preaching, uh, I would never talk about money. Uh, I would never talk about any any text that directly address my own weaknesses because you feel like a hypocrite, right, when you're teaching something that uh, you yourself are not great at. And I would avoid all of the uncomfortable topics. I for sure would never talk about uh, divorce or something like that, some sort of hot topic. But that would be shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And so I've determined for myself anyways just to preach right through books of the Bible, not skipping anything, uh, letting Scripture determine Uh, what it is that I'm going to preach. Each week, I'm not really deciding uh, what to talk about. I'm just teaching the next text. And so if you want to know what I'm going to teach next week, turn the page and look. That's what I'm going to teach next week, Uh, whatever the text says. Because that's the best way that I know how to declare the whole counsel of God. Teaching is the primary responsibility of the pastor. And just to emphasize how serious of a task it is to teach others, look at what Paul says back in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. And then look at the reason that he can say that. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Meaning, had he not declared the whole counsel of God to these people, he would be guilty of their blood. He had done his job here. He had taught them scripture. And now it was up to them to do what they would with that. But if Paul had shrunk back, if he had failed to communicate the whole counsel of God to them, their blood would be on his hands. He is only innocent of their blood because he had preached the whole counsel of God. That's a very sobering thought to me. Those who teach scripture are responsible for the souls of those listening. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Uh, By the way, that verse right there is exactly what we try to do here. Read Scripture publicly, explain what the Scripture says, and apply it to our lives. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, 
which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the primary responsibility of a pastor like Timothy here is to teach the whole counsel of God, to accurately and carefully teach scripture, holding back nothing that would be profitable. Next, we learn from this text in Acts 20 that pastors must be attentive to their own spiritual growth and to the health of the whole church. We'll pick up the pace here on the rest of these. Verse 28, Paul says to these pastors, pay attention to yourselves. Now, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Uh, notice how that verse begins. Pastors are to pay careful attention, first of all, to ourselves and then to all of the flock. We must be attentive to our own spiritual health and growth, as well as the health of the whole body. Uh, next point, also coming from this verse, pastors have the responsibility to oversee the church. Again, verse 28, he says, be care uh, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Uh, to be a pastor is to be an overseer of a church. We aren't just called to teach the Bible, although that's the uh, primary responsibility. We are also to oversee the church and to lead. Uh, over in Hebrews chapter 13, we read in verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so the author of Hebrews is talking to these Christians about their pastors, those who were leading them, those who were teaching them the word of God. And a few verses later, he says, Obey your leaders, verse 17, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so as pastors, as overseers, again, I believe I will have to stand before God and give an account for how I led this church that is under my leadership. That's a very heavy responsibility. Along the same lines, number five, pastors have a responsibility to care for the church. Uh, toward the end of verse 28, the Holy Spirit has made us overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Pastors are to care for the church. In other words, my position as pastor shouldn't be all about me. It should be all about you. It's not about me building my own platform and uh, imposing my own rules on others. No, I should lead the church and I should teach the church and guide in such a way that, that it would be an aid to your spiritual growth. <clears throat> Next, pastors should be alert and protect the flock from false teaching. Uh, this comes from Verse 29, where the false teachers, Paul refers to them as wolves, using an image. Uh, pastor, by the way, just to mention this, the word pastor uh, means shepherd. And so as a pastor, as a shepherd, you are to guard, uh, guard the flock from wolves uh, that would seek to come in and attack the sheep. And so that's the image that Paul is working with here in verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, after I leave you all, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So pastors have the responsibility as shepherds to protect the sheep 
from those who would wish to do them harm. And Paul says, be alert, uh, be on guard, be watching for this. Paul writes again in uh, 2 Timothy 4 to a young pastor. He says to him, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So pastors are to teach sound doctrine, to preach the word clearly and patiently, so that you will be able to discern between true and false teaching. Uh, Not everyone who claims to be a preacher of the gospel can be trusted. And part of my job as your pastor is to be on guard against those uh, who would seek to infiltrate the church and lead people astray. It doesn't happen very often. I can think of one occasion, though, where it did, uh, where someone came in here, and some of you know it, I won't mention a name, uh, but somebody came in here teaching some things that were very much so contradictory to Scripture, and he and I had a little talk about that, and he never came back again. Uh, but I, I, it's part of my responsibility as a pastor not to be offensive or rude, uh, but to be on guard about the sheep that are under my care to make sure uh, that false teachers are not coming in and leading others astray. Paul, of course, demonstrated this quite clearly in his own life. Uh, all of these points you see him at times, even in his own letters. Uh, Paul would write and say, avoid this teacher, and he would name the person and say, don't listen to that guy. He's teaching you things that are not true. Uh, Many names like that are listed in Paul's letters uh, to the churches, because as a shepherd, uh, he was responsible to guard the sheep from uh, the wolves, the false teachers outside. Last point in regard to elders and uh, Paul's instructions to them, the last point is that pastors must not be lazy. Again, Paul demonstrated this very well in his own life, Paul says that there's nothing wrong with paying a pastor. He says that in many of his letters, it's actually a good thing uh, if a church is able to hire a full-time pastor to dedicate his life to the work of ministry. But it seems to me that Paul's pattern of life was left as an example to these elders in Ephesus, that they should be willing to work a secular job if needed. Uh, He says to them in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, and to those who were with me, saying, I worked myself so that I would not be uh, a burden to the church. Verse 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul says, my pattern of life that you have seen me working and laboring with my own hands to supply my own living and to give generously uh, that's, a, that's something I've shown you as a pattern now for you to follow. And so Paul is encouraging these elders to follow his example, to work hard in order to be able to give generously. So those are seven instructions <clears throat> to the pastors of the church at Ephesus. Now let's consider two general observations uh, that I think are very clear from this text. These are very simple and straightforward, and we've seen them many times Uh, and other passages that we've studied, but I just wanted to mention these and highlight them here so that you see them again. Uh, First of all, the message that we proclaim to the lost is one of repentance and faith. Uh, This comes from verse 21, where Paul says that he was testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith is the only saving response to the gospel of the kingdom. A faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, and then repentance is turning from a life of sin to a life of obedience to our risen Lord. Uh, this is the message of Paul here in Ephesus throughout these three years. He says, this is what I was preaching to the lost. I was preaching that they must repent of their sins and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this ought to be our message as well. Next observation, and this one we'll spend a little bit more time on, is that churches are to be led by elders. Uh, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. So churches in the New Testament did not function uh, as a democracy. It wasn't a congregational type of model uh, where people voted on all sorts of things. That was not the model of the church in the New Testament. There were elders, overseers, pastors. These pastors were responsible to teach, uh, to make decisions, to oversee the church in its day-to-day functioning. As I mentioned, the word pastor means shepherd, which I think uh, very well communicates what my responsibility is, to care for the sheep, to feed the sheep, to protect the sheep from wolves, and to lead the sheep. You get the image of a pastor on a, or a shepherd on a, on a hillside with the sheep kind of following. That's the image uh, that is seen throughout the New Testament. Churches, however, and this is an important balancing point, should have multiple elders. And here is one area that our church uh, is not technically really functioning properly. Okay, the ideal model in the New Testament is for each local church to be led by a plurality of pastors, not just one guy. Uh, now, I don't think it's necessarily sinful or wrong uh, for me to be the only pastor here. Uh, it's just not ideal. There were times when it seemed like one man did bear the responsibility to lead churches in the New Testament. Uh, for example, Luke, uh, when Paul left Luke behind at Philippi, uh, that was a brand new church. Uh, there were not well-established Christians there. Luke was about the only person there that was a mature Christian. You had uh, the Philippian jailer and his family. You had Lydia and her family, and that was about it. And so Luke presumably was the only pastor of that church uh, for quite a while. But ideally, a church will raise up other men who can help to teach and lead the church. Uh, because otherwise, if it's just one guy like me doing all of the teaching and making all the decisions, it's sort of a dictatorship. Uh, and sometimes that can get quite ugly. Uh, hopefully you don't experience that here. I try to be a benevolent dictator. But seriously, uh, it would be great someday if we had other men who were willing to serve in the church as elders that were qualified to teach uh, and to lead. I think all of us as a church would benefit greatly from that. That's something I pray regularly for, and I hope that you will too, uh, that God would raise up among us more pastors. Maybe he would see fit uh, to bring some men to our church who are already mature in the faith, apt to teach, uh, and to raise, or uh, if not to bring them, to raise them up uh, from our own church here. But elders or pastors, those who are responsible uh, for teaching and leading the church, uh, they are not to be confused with deacons. Deacons are not leaders of the church in the New Testament. I know this is going to sound uh, very different maybe from some of the churches you might have grown up in uh, or attended in the past, uh, but biblically there's no such thing as a deacon board. Okay, A lot of churches, including the church that I grew up in, uh, basically you had one pastor who did all of the teaching, all of the preaching, and then you had a group of deacons who essentially made all of the decisions. I don't know if that's familiar to you. That was kind of the model that I grew up in. And so the solo pastor 
had total authority over the teaching and the doctrine of the church, while the deacons had total authority over the finances and decisions of the church. Uh, and that kind of arrangement, there was a lot of headbutting between the two, between the pastor and the deacon board. There's a lot of fighting between them. And uh, many churches have split over that sort of a model. But more than that, it's just not biblical. Uh, biblically, pastors are to lead the church as a group. Again, ideally, there should be a plurality of pastors uh, leading together. Deacons are appointed by the pastors to serve in various roles whenever something needs to be cared for. That's what we see in Acts 6. Uh, there was an issue with the widows not being cared for, and so they said, hey, let's appoint some deacons over this specific uh, service. And that's the way that the church is supposed to function. Now, again, as of right now, we only have one pastor here. And while that is not ideal, we do try our best to make that work as best as we can. Uh, for example, I don't make financial decisions alone. When it comes to church funds, uh, I don't just decide to go buy something uh, on my own. All of those things are communicated between me and Malachi, and many of the things are even brought before the church for a vote. So we try to be uh, very accountable in that sense. Uh, we provide financial reports so you can see what's being given and where those funds are being used. Uh, all of that is an attempt to work the best that we can with our current structure as it is, so that I'm just not kind of a, a loose cannon. <laughs> I've seen situations where one pastor had the right to just do whatever he want and spent you know, tens of thousands of dollars remodeling his own office and just ridiculous things like that. So uh, as a safeguard against that, we try to put in some accountability. But ideally, uh, the best case scenario someday would be for us to have multiple pastors uh, sharing the responsibility of overseeing the church. I think that would be a very healthy change. I think it would be healthy if I wasn't the only one you ever heard teaching uh, on Sundays. It would be very good for us to have uh, multiple elders. So I hope you'll pray with me about that, uh, that God would provide other elders for our church in the future. And if you're here, and you're listening to me talk, and you're thinking, uh, I wonder if I could someday be an elder and serve in that role, come talk to me about that. Uh, certainly God could use someone who is already here already uh, to function in that role. Okay, so those are general observations of the text about the gospel that Paul preached, about the church polity, the structure uh, that Paul put in place in these churches that we see modeled in the New Testament. Now we come to the last section of the sermon. I want to close this morning by just giving some final application that I think will be uh, beneficial to all of us. I know a lot of this has been specifically about pastors. Maybe you're thinking, uh, this all seems pretty irrelevant to me and to my life. Uh, but I think there are a few uh, points here, if we step back and look more broadly, that all of us can learn from. The first one is that faithfulness to the calling of God is more important than our own lives. This comes in verse 24, after Paul has told the Ephesian elders that he's headed for Jerusalem, he knows that imprisonment and persecution will face him there. He says to them in verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says to them, I know that I'm headed for trouble in Jerusalem, but my life is of no value to myself. That's a very profound statement that Paul would say that. My life means nothing to me. My only worth, he says, the only purpose in my life is to finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. That's it. And so if you read these, these letters of Paul, you read the book of Acts, and you see his fearlessness in the face of persecution, imprisonment, and death, 
And you think to yourself, how did, he, how did he do that? How did he have this mindset? Well, I think the answer is right here. Paul did not fear death because he wasn't living for himself. Paul's life was so dedicated to Christ uh, that for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. Now, most of us are not called to Paul's ministry, of course. Paul was uniquely called by God uh, to travel around and to start churches. That is not what most of us are called to do. Uh, These Ephesian elders, for example, were not even called to do that. Paul tells them, you know, stay here, stay put, take care of this church. So not everyone is supposed to follow Paul's pattern of life in exactly the same way that he ministered. Uh, The point is not for each of us to leave our homes and travel around and uh, preach the gospel and establish churches the way that Paul did. Most of us are called to be faithful right where we are, using the gifts and the opportunities that God has given to us. But whatever our specific calling is, each one of us should follow the example of Paul in finding our worth, not in ourselves, but in glorifying and obeying our Lord. In other words, we ought not to live for ourselves. Our lives ought to be motivated by obedience to Christ. That should be the primary goal and focus in our lives, not merely our own interests or pleasures. Next application for us, each of these kind of build on one another. Uh, This next one, always be on the lookout for false teaching. Again, verses 29 to 30, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice that Paul says in verse 30, not only there will be teachers uh, outside the church, that's true, of course, Uh, You turn on the television, listen to pretty much any televangelist, they're probably a false teacher. Okay, there's all sorts of that out there. But Paul goes even further than that. He says, you won't just encounter false teaching from outside. There may even arise false teachers within your own church who are leading people astray. And Paul says in verse 30, among your own selves, meaning among the elders of the church, you may come across a situation where someone is teaching doctrinal error. And so Paul says, Always be on the lookout for false teaching. Compare what someone is saying against the standard of Scripture. And it can take some time to learn, uh, to grow in your discernment, because sometimes people can use the Bible and sound like a really good Bible teacher when in reality they're twisting it, they're distorting its meaning. So this is why you need to read the Bible for yourself. Immerse your mind uh, in the text of Scripture so that when you hear someone teaching something, You can recall passages of Scripture and ask yourself if what they're saying lines up with what you've read in God's Word yourself. Uh, Next point of application. We serve the Lord primarily by serving others. Uh, Beginning in verse 18, Paul says to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so he says, I was serving the Lord, and then here's how he did that, verse 20. For I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, uh, teaching you in public and from house to house. And so we serve the Lord primarily by serving others. This is why Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And the second greatest commandment, is similar. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two are similar commands because the primary way that we love God is by loving others. 
As Paul himself illustrates, the primary way that we serve God is by serving his church. As we seek to edify others, we are serving God. Uh, Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did it not, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a heavy text there in Matthew 25. But Jesus makes the point very clear that we serve him by serving others, giving the gospel to others, helping them to learn and grow spiritually as Paul did, even caring for physical needs, as Jesus says. And this leads us to the last point of application. Experience the blessing of giving. Verse 35 of our text, Paul says to them, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul had worked very hard during these years in Ephesus, toiling night and day, teaching publicly in the hall of Tyrannus and privately in people's homes. He labored and poured himself into this church for three years. He worked his job on the side throughout this whole time so that he could support himself and give financially to the church. And now as Paul leaves them, he admonishes the elders to follow his example. And he reminds them of the words that Jesus said. And by the way, this is the only place in Scripture that you'll find these words. They don't appear in the Gospels. Uh, That shouldn't surprise us too much. Jesus said all sorts of things that weren't written down uh, in the Gospels. But apparently this quote was one that was known to have originated from Christ. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's a blessing to be encouraged. It's more of a blessing to be the one encouraging. There's a blessing in receiving a financial gift, but there's an even greater blessing in being the one who's able to give it. This statement of Jesus is one that Paul modeled throughout his ministry. He gave himself in the service of others. I'll look back quickly at how Paul describes his time in Ephesus. Verse 19, he says that he was serving the Lord with all humility 
and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Again, in verse 31, he says, Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. There were a lot of tears that were shed by Paul throughout these three years. A lot of admonishing, a lot of teaching, a lot of early mornings and late nights, a lot of trials and threats on Paul's life. And through it all, he says that he served the Lord with humility because Paul had learned and had experienced the truth that there is a superior blessing to be found in giving. And so the lesson for each of us is not just to be a consumer, but to be a giver. The happiest, most fulfilled people are those who spend their lives giving of themselves, giving of their finances, giving of their time, serving other people. If you're self-focused, that's a way to get very miserable and depressed very quickly. But if you give yourself in the service of others and in the service ultimately of our Lord, that's the most fulfilled life that any of us can live. You might look at Paul's life and not really see the blessing. Uh, Certainly, Paul went through many trials. He faced much persecution. And yet, as you read his letters, you find a man filled with joy. Uh, Paul lived until his final days with a profound sense of purpose. He didn't have any regrets at the end of his life, as so many of us do and will. Here are some of Paul's last words shortly before his death. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes, I am ready, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So he says, I know that I'm about to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul ran his race well. He finished well. Uh, He lived a full life in service to his Lord. And as Paul passed into eternity and he saw the Lord face to face, only then did Paul really begin to grasp what Jesus meant by the superior blessing of giving. Because a life lived in service to Christ, a life of giving yourself for the sake of others, that kind of life will be rewarded greatly in eternity. We close today with the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you.